just a note on accessibility. From now on, we are uploading music-free versions of each episode. You can find those at our blog, jetpack.zoob.net or jetpack.zoob.net. The blog post for each episode features an embedded player with a music-free version. And you can also find transcripts of a number of our episodes pinned to the top of the blog. future for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. On today's show, we're going to reveal the horrible truth. But first, I'd like to tell you about Squarespace. Spoiler warning for Godzilla vs. Kong. Welcome, fellow travellers, to the Where's My Jetpack podcast review of Godzilla vs. Kong with guest Jace Short. Jace is a doctoral student at the New School for Social Research, studying ancient philosophy, but also a huge kaiju fan who's spoken at several conventions on the topic, published some writings in Red Wedge magazine, and published an article in the collection Giant Monsters in Our World, by McFarlane, titled Monsters of the Rift, Kaiju as Ciphers of Unbalance, uh, which is very worth reading in terms of the sort of ecological underlying themes of of the genre. Uh, And this is the second time we've had Jace on. Regular listeners may remember the two of us reviewed a whole bunch of kaiju flicks for the Christmas episode. So welcome back to the show, Jace. Thank you. Glad to be back. Uh, your hosts, Derek and Annie, will also be giving our thoughts. But we're going to let Jace kick off the review. So what were your thoughts on the movie? Okay, so right off the bat, I think it's important to point out that like a good portion of this film is basically a heavy metal fever dream. You've got Kong racing through the hollow earth, and there's this like epic synth music playing, and he gets a giant axe, and... You know, Godzilla blasts a hole through the center of the earth. I mean, this is so over the top. And uh, the director, Adam Wingard, mentioned his love for King Kong Escapes, which is like literally like a cartoon come to life. It was a Rankin-Bass cartoon, and Toho turned it into this really zany film that's uh, a favorite from a lot of fans. And so with this one, between the almost excessive editing of character moments, there were 30 minutes of character work eliminated before the final cut. The reuse of footage for scenes that wasn't intended for, all of that kind of stuff really makes this feel like a classic Toho film with its flaws. And famous comic book Godzilla artist Matt Frank, he described this whole film as a cartoon come to life. And I think that captures the essence of what makes this movie work. So I was a huge fan of Godzilla King of the Monsters, but general audiences just didn't connect with it. Some argued that it was because of how much it leaned into the classic Toho tropes, but as we can see, Godzilla vs. Kong sort of raised this to an art form. I think King of the Monsters attempts to be about something and to, to deploy a classic family drama just didn't work for audiences. It just wasn't compelling or well done. And I, I found it interesting, but I, I can see how it wasn't enough for others. And 
really Sarazawa's uh, self-sacrifice was this really emotional moment for like a subset of fans like me. Um, but for others, it even alienated. And then for general audiences, it didn't really make sense. That was a moment that was sort of like rhyming with the original Godzilla film. So I think that Godzilla vs. Kong really feels different. Audiences, you know, with the response, audiences are really raving about it. Critics like it. Audiences like it. Many are having their first post-pandemic theatrical experience with this film. It was that for me. Not that it's exactly super safe to do so in the United States at the moment, but I, I've had my shots and there was hardly anybody in the theater at the time. It feels like this film is like the right level of escapism for this moment. In a year where everyone realized we're at the mercy of nature, the world will sublimate that anxiety into watching a giant monkey fight a giant lizard in a perfectly timed release before we snap and punch and or kiss the mailman. I'm scared to see this in a theater. Not because of the virus. I've just completely forgotten how to interact with people. Everyone's a bit war-weary with politics and social commentary with the pandemic and the crisis of the Trump administration really brought uh, with the election and like the question of is there going to be a peaceful handover or not. I think a lot of people really in enjoyed having this kind of spectacle to just take their minds off of things. And it's strange for me to celebrate that because generally I'm of the position that fantasy and science fiction, horror, these things should really have a biting political impact and critique. But, you know, kind of for once, I, I don't know, I, I, I get why this resonated. And I, I appreciate that the, the MonsterVerse films, they've nonetheless kept this underlying theme of ecological balance in the background. So it's not totally missing from this film, but Really, I think it, what they were trying to say in King of the Monsters bothered some people. Like a lot of a lot of the most like insightful voices in the fandom took issue with the positive spin on radiation that happened at the end of Godzilla: King of the Monsters, claiming it was a betrayal of what Godzilla had stood for. And I'm not in in agreement with that critique, but it's uh, a reasonable way to read the film. And you know, if a major section of fans don't like a movie and audiences don't like a movie, the film's not going to work. And I'm really glad as a kaiju fan for this one to work. I do think there's some, you know, major issues we could have had. We could have used some more character work and the villains were a really missed opportunity. I mean, this was Dr. Sarazawa's son who was piloting Mechagodzilla and we said nothing about his motivations. What drove him to do that? There's some like Lex Luthor versus Superman man style material at work here with the CEO's desire to put humanity back, you know, on top of the hierarchy with Mechagodzilla and it's just left unexplored. And I, I think Kong's journey was this like really beautiful thing for people to watch. The effects work with his face continues this tradition of like really good special effects work with ape emotional expression. You know, we saw, saw that with the remake of the Planet of the Apes movies. I was about to make that connection myself. The signing and communication aspect and just the visual effects we now have to have sort of expressive ape characters. Yeah, I very much agree with that. And I thought I was thinking of it myself, thinking about the signing aspect of the film. But yeah, sorry, go on. No, you're, you're, yeah. And I think Kong really allowed us to experience aspects of this film that we don't normally in a kaiju film. Normally there's, a, there's always the question of like, what do the humans do? And they're watching and we're sort of watching through them watching. But with Kong, it made, you know, it gave you this, this kaiju that's just humanoid enough that you were able to feel something of what he felt. I remember my, my best friend and I were watching the trailer for this. And when you see Kong looking off the aircraft carrier 
in the ocean and seeing Godzilla's spikes as he's like swimming around him like a shark, he noted he was like, oh, he looks afraid. Yeah, he's almost the lead of all the protagonists of the movie more than any of the humans are, you could say. Absolutely. Yeah, I think so. And I, you know, there's something too, like he travels to the underworld and gets a magical weapon to fight this like dragon figure. There's some hero's journey stuff going on with that. And, and it's interesting just the way it's treated. Like, you know, he's the underdog the whole time and yet he is sort of defeated by Godzilla and then revived. And then he gets to get the glory kill of Mecha Godzilla. But they were able to show Godzilla and his like godlike power and near invincibility that, you know, kind of characterizes him. And, Kong's vulnerability and cleverness and kind of the scrappiness of his fighting style, they're able to balance those out really well. The kaiju fights are what made this film, and that's how it should be. That's what people are coming to see it for. So that aspect of it just made it really wonderful for me. And I'm, I'm a huge fan of Mechagodzilla too, and uh, bringing him in as a as a villain. I was worried that they weren't going to treat him right. You know, I'd seen how they treated Kong and Godzilla in their films, so I, I could trust the studio to do something with them that would make sense. But uh, with Mechagodzilla, I wasn't so sure. And I really loved this instantiation. I mean, we got the best of both worlds, the sort of humans making it as a way to counter a kaiju, but also it has those um, callbacks to Kiryu where he, he goes on on his own. He separates from the pilot and Mechagodzilla becomes sort of self-aware. And there's just this sort of, you know, monstrosity, Frankenstein's monster. So... That was an excellent part. And I also, I appreciated getting some Monsterverse action with Godzilla being more villainous. I mean, he has a reason why he's doing the things in the film and he's not just wrecking things for the, you know, sheer hell of it. But nonetheless, like he shows up in the first 10 minutes of the movie and he's the kind of frightful Godzilla that we saw in his less heroic endeavors. And the Monsterverse films have, if anything, they've really leaned into this Godzilla as the hero as the savior of humanity. It was nice to see him as a terror again. But yeah, I guess that kind of like sums up my thoughts. I, there's a lot to say, and I think you're going to say something about the character of Gia and like the sign language and stuff. There's so much wonderful material with that, but I'm just gonna point it out. And it's something that I hope they develop more if they do more films. But yeah, that more or less concludes my review. Do you have a score out of 10? Yeah, I'm, I'm difficult with scores out of 10, but I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10. But like, I feel like I should give it two scores. Like Kaiju Fan, it's a 10 out of 10. And general audience movie, like well-crafted film, more like a 6 out of 10. So maybe the 8 out of 10 uh, kind of blends them together. I'm 7.5 out of 10, so quite close to that. Yeah, I agree. If you're going to score just the knockout battles... Those are like 9 or 10 out of 10. But as we're going to talk about, if you're going to score the rest of the story, maybe some more issues there, which which I'll talk about. But first off, I agree that it is essentially a cartoon. I mean, it, it hit the same spot in my brain that watching, you know, the sort of Saturday, Sunday morning cartoons hit in your brain kind of as a kid. But also the other thing in my brain is that it automatically seeks out the deeper meaning, even, even in a cartoon, which is half of what this podcast is about and I think I think you're the same yeah you know that's why we're nerds but um but before we go get into that into the sort of does it have a deeper meaning what have you it was a solid blockbuster experience it had great battles I loved all the decapitations uh, as I think you mentioned it was there was a kind of visceral 
ness to the fights in this, which with CGI, you don't always have the viscera of, of battles. Sometimes they can feel a bit weightless, but this had a real, a real sense of, of visceral yeah, violence in a, in a fun way. Uh, and watching on the station IMAX, there was a lot of applause, especially for Kong. I'm still more of a Godzilla fan, but despite this movie perhaps leaning more towards Kong, I still managed to toe the line and, and please both sides. And introducing Mechagodzilla as a common enemy allowed them to dodge coming down too hard on one side, making it just a King Kong movie. And in a way, Mechagodzilla felt pretty arbitrary, even if he, d he does have a backstory and, and also a backstory in the entire Toho kind of universe. Uh, but it was kind of a deus ex in a way, and it could have probably been interchanged with really any common enemy. But it still worked, and uh, probably because this is a knockout battle movie. Like, its pleasures have a lot more in common with pro wrestling than, than some other, you know, cinematic genres. And in pro wrestling, you can get away with just throwing in a heel to, to freshen things up. And I kept thinking, like, did, did somebody at Monarch let Kong watch pro wrestling? Because, like, his moves were, like, reminding me of, of some of King Kong Bundy or some of the larger wrestlers in the WWF, like Andre the Giant or somebody. And I really loved the Kong parkour scenes on the ships and the buildings. I thought that was sweet. And by the way, you know, we're also fans of King of the Monsters at this podcast, particularly the eco themes, which we discussed in our, our review of it, which if you want to go back, was December 2019. But just focusing on one aspect, uh, I've been saying that your enjoyment of King of the Monsters, especially the battles, may depend on what screen you watch it on, because the darker cinematography could end up washed out uh, if you watch it, say, on a laptop in the light of day. I thought King of the Monsters was was beautiful on the big screen with the, the high contrast and backlighting which made it not washed out and more murky. You could say this is still partly true of Godzilla vs Kong, it's, it's always the case with these blockbuster movies that are likely to be more enjoyable on a big screen, uh, but I think the brighter cinematography here might make it less of a problem. It is, I think, better designed to be watched on any screen and at least it's less likely to end up washed out or, or difficult to follow than something that's sort of darker. And I took this note about the difference before re-watching it on a smaller screen and sort of tried verifying it last night by watching it on my laptop. And there was less of a glaring gap between the, the big screen and small screen experience, at least for me. Uh, than it was with King of the Monsters. And obviously this being partly made for a streaming audience, I think that was sensible. And I know there were people who criticized the cinematography of King of the Monsters. So it seems like they made the right choice there in lighting the, lighting the scenes a bit more brightly. This entry also developed the lore of that movie and, and the Monsterverse generally with the Hollow Earth aspect. I kind of was less sold on that than, than both you and Derek, actually. There were good aspects. You know, the whole journey to the center of the Earth it was, was initially intriguing. It had some nice aesthetic aspects to it. But in the end, I wasn't really sold, partly because of what the ultimate narrative purpose it served, apparently, which is to give Kong a home. And to me, Kong already has a home. Skull Island is already his home. And giving him a new home solves a problem that wasn't really a problem. You know, sure, there's the storm, but then that's just a randomly introduced bit of backstory that then isn't apparent in the cinematic version. Uh, and the problem 
prior to that it was people invading, people not understanding the place, people abducting him in the pre-monsterverse versions, or even in this one, abducting him again. And Kong Skull Island, which is a brilliant movie, was kind of the apocalypse now to original Kong's Heart of Darkness. And so with the journey through into the island, uh, it kind of subverted the racism that's, that's honestly baked into the original Kong and, and many of its remakes. And arguably Kong Skull Island was the first really to do this, to subvert the racism of that story. You know, compared to Peter Jackson, who just shamelessly leans into the racism. This verse has been a little better on that, but at the same time, I did think the Godzilla vs. Kong's resolution of that issue, it didn't quite satisfy me. Kong had already existed in balance with the tribe and the island, so the problem wasn't his lack of a home, it was, frankly, Imperial intervention upsetting that balance. And admittedly, imperialism is a hard problem to solve in a knockout battle movie two hours long. But, you know, who's to say now that people know of the Hollow Earth, they won't do the same thing again? It doesn't seem to solve the problem to me. And, you know, even if they didn't overthrow imperialism, which is a big ask. Even so, an ending like Jurassic Park 2, with the kind of conservationism and non-interference on the island, worked better for me rather than sort of relocating him. But there were some nice aspects. I, I enjoyed the sign language with Kong. That that was cool, as we mentioned. And I actually just watched uh, Gorillas in the Mist. So this brought out that some sort of maybe simplified aspects of that, where in that you have a few stages of communication with Sigourney figuring out how to mimic them. Uh, and this brought out sort of a, a more a somewhat simplified version of that into, into a blockbuster story. And that element of sort of interspecies communication is, is, was one of the more interesting aspects of this and the fact that also her deafness actually gave her a communicative advantage was was really interesting so i enjoyed that that part of it overall though it was stronger on spectacle than story i'd say so legendary monsterverse is almost like the inverse of the marvel cinematic universe so in the MCU, the CGI battles are just boring and feel weightless. But the characters always sparkle, so they'll often have a great first two acts with like these really enjoyable, entertaining characters. And then they'll just have the boring ass, dragged out third act CGI battle. And the Monsterverse is, again, it's kind of the inverse. It delivers on the kaiju front, but it's more patchy on the, on the human front. That's it, there were some nice character moments here. They were really just moments here and there rather than anything developed. The conspiracy skeptic Kiwi, played by Julian Dennison, was MVP for me. So as a conspiracy skeptic Kiwi myself, it was hard not to over-relate and project onto a minor comic relief character. And his breakout New Zealand role was Hunt for the Wilder People by Taika Waititi, which by the way is worth a watch as anything by Taika Waititi is. And Denison's performance and also his self-deprecating sense of humour here was profoundly Kiwi. And I, I guess there had to be improv because the writers probably wouldn't capture that on their own. So a quick Google search did confirm there was a lot of improv in those scenes. You can kind of tell. Okay, I'm smart, but I only got a high school. It's a living supercomputer. I'm not used to this. I'm used to pirating movies online. Come on, I thought you said you were a hacker. I just said I took an HTML course at summer camp. 
HTML. He said summer camp. Was it a 90s camp? And also he coins Mecha Godzilla. So that was that was a nice little moment. That's Robo Godzilla. No, that's that's Mecha Godzilla. And again, I was a bit skeptical of all the conspiracy theory stuff. It really feels like playing with fire in the current context. But then I've often said that conspiracy theories make for better fiction than political theory. A, a, a friend of mine, uh, Andy Campbell, who had a podcast some years ago, uh, Kaiju 101, at the end of it, like the first thing he said to me was, well, Madison is definitely into QAnon now. Yeah, yeah, well, it felt so directly like that. You know, it was very overt with the fluoride brain stuff. Do you realize that fluoridation is the most monstrously conceived and dangerous communist plot we have ever had to face? That felt a bit more harmless like 10 years ago. There was a, a joke on the Honest trailers where they said the best conspiracy theory jokes of 2007. Because <laughs> you know that that seemed, seemed funny then when it was all just, oh, triangles and, and isn't that all very silly. But now that we've had this resurgent far right, it, it sort of resonates a little differently so I, I felt like they were playing playing with fire there again and initially i was like well is this a dog whistle but then i wonder if they just didn't really think it through rather than it really being a conscious dog whistle i mean i love they live i love the society the, the body horror film i love lots of films they have a kind of conspiracy theory plot because again it does make for a good story conspiracies uh make for great villains and David and Goliath stories, but um, maybe being aware of context, a bit more like consciousness of that might have might have been good. I think, just to interject really quickly, there's something to the like, 80s and 90s experience of being a kaiju fan when there wasn't really the internet and we didn't know how many movies there were and stuff and such. There was an overlap of being a kaiju fan, being into dinosaur movies, and this whole like Bigfoot cryptid world that I think this what this was somewhat you know trying to like connect to. Right. Um, but you're right. I think you, you yeah. know playing with fire is exactly right. I think it would have hit differently too if the conspiracy theorists had been you know a white guy who looked like Alex Jones. Yeah, yeah. You know, okay. it at least helped to soften the blow a little bit to have a non-white guy. Yeah. doing that but anyway yeah. yeah yeah i was thinking the same thing people of color are perfectly capable of participating in, in the far right right uh, but at the same time it did make it feel less like it might be playing to white supremacy even even so one thing it did remind me of uh and hopefully fans don't get upset hearing my vicious attack here but uh the ridiculous response to King of the Monsters poor reviews where people thought the reviewers were being paid off by Marvel or <laughs> the tank the Monsterverse. And I was just like, come on, critics probably just don't get the movie. That was the first thing my mind actually went to with the conspiracy theorist stuff. I mean, I think it was probably just that they were having kind of fun with it and went, maybe didn't consider that. I related hard to his awkward interview request where he goes straight from introducing himself and shaking hands to like asking for an interview. I've done that myself. <laughs> that got a laugh from me. So I ended up relating mostly to the comic relief characters rather than any of the more serious characters. And you mentioned Sirizawa's son not being developed at all. 
And that is a fair point, but there was like an interesting element there, that was his relationship with the Apex CEO. And actually, the, the CEO's kind of ruthless, get in the mech attitude very much reminded me of Avon Galleon. Yes, there's there's the get get in the robot moment, like just straight straight up Evangelion reference there, I think. We have no idea how this energy source will affect the mecha. Get in the goddamn chair. Yeah, I think that was a, a direct reference. And it's that kind of theme of this utilitarian war, you know, the mech is a weapon and the young being forced by the old to, you know, to get in the robot. But these were just kind of brief hints at an idea. You know, Evangelia developed that idea into this apocalyptic, amazing thematic level, whereas this kind of had these brief hints of an idea and then just kind of moved on, which was often the case with a lot of things this movie touched on, I thought. Back to Hollow Earth, from a story perspective, they build up the journey to the center of the Earth and then they immediately leave for the climax. And you're right, the aesthetics were cool. I know Derek was more into it from a kind of lore perspective, so perhaps he can speak to that. Uh, but I feel it's such a tight blockbuster, uh, it might have worked better as a backstory footnote than like a central element of the story. Uh, when actually the main action ultimately all happens on the surface, or the main Godzilla versus Kong knockout battle action, it all happens on the surface. So, I mean, honestly, bring back the 90-minute movie, keep it tight, kill your darlings. Uh, I do appreciate that the director said he could make a five-hour cut, but uh, he doesn't want to. And it's funny, you know, I say it shouldn't be extended, uh, but at the same time, there are so many little tantalizing hints of something deeper that aren't developed. But perhaps rather than extending it, they could have focused on one aspect of the human story from the start, you know, not not so much slashed things later on as, as just focused on something rather than spreading the story so thin. The Toho movies tend to follow just one team in Japan, in Japan. you know, there's one problem-solving team rather than a lot of these Monsterverse movies, this and King of the Monsters in particular, it kind of feels like you've got two, then three, then four sets of characters that they're kind of following. I feel like a straight action story should have an A plot and a B plot rather than sort of C, D, E and F plots that are all kind of skimmed over. But ultimately, I mean, it was solid fun, you know, it works just as a spectacle. So. Again, uh, it's a 7.5 out of 10 for me. When you're getting that granular, granular, maybe I should be scoring out of 20. But for me, the best of the legendary MonsterVerse is still Kong Skull Island. Yeah, I don't know that I'm able to make a judgment quite on what the best of the MonsterVerse is, but I tend to go towards Skull, Skull Island too. It just feels like it does everything right. There's enjoyable characters, the setting, it's beautiful it moves along at a good pace it makes sense so yeah i, I kind of tend to fall into that camp too though king of the monsters definitely has more emotional impact on me than anything else but that has to do mostly just having this like long obsessive relationship with godzilla my order of the movies kong skull island is the first uh second uh king of monsters third godzilla versus kong and fourth 2014 godzilla I was going to say about the Hollow Earth stuff. On the one hand, you're, you're right, but it's introduced in each of these films, barely mentioned in the first. Then it's a major point that's going to be coming up with Skull Island because they discover like that's kind of an entrance to the Hollow Earth. 
and then it becomes a, a huge thing in King of the Monsters. We see the temple and uh, you know Godzilla's home and all of that. Really, you know, the ancient ruins really, I think, gave you the sense of wonder that drew you into the movie in a different way than just seeing the giant monsters. You got that from Skull Island, just from Skull Island, from the not from the nature of the island. And I, I think in King of the Monsters, you got that sense of awe, you know, with the temple. And here, you really just got blown away with dropping Kong into this world. I think I'm maybe a bit bit rough on it, and like uh, it actually did work aesthetically. I think the size of it was was one thing that worked aesthetically. It reminds you that actually the planet is huge. So if you're going to have something within the planet. It's not a claustrophobic space within the Earth. So it did work, you know, on some levels. I just, I'm not totally sold on the idea that Skull Island isn't a good home for Kong. Like, to me, that's never been the issue. And it felt like this just turned it into an issue. And yeah, I mean, definitely the Hollow Earth had been built up uh, over the series. But my first initial unfair note straight after watching the movie was that it felt like lore for the sake of lore and that it didn't actually add to the central story all that much. But maybe I'm wrong. I feel like there were maybe some issues with it, but overall it sort of worked mostly because of that journey aspect. You know, as you say, the hero's journey, Kong also conquering the other kaiju during that journey and then and then finding his, his kind of weapon and returning. I guess it worked on that kind of mythic level, even if I can have my, like, little pedantic issues it looked good I'll, I'll admit that much i was looking into the history again because you know this is something that was considered seriously by scientists and is actually famous here in florida uh, about the hollow earth theory we have the village of estero in uh southern florida that was established and incorporated by followers of this guy cyrus teed who proposed this theory that people live on the inside of the Earth's outer skin, as we saw in the movie, and not unlike a Dyson sphere, and that celestial bodies are all contained inside the hollow Earth. So you had the spheres within spheres. This theory, he called it Koreshian uh, unity, and they bought a lot of land around here in 1894, and they were even going uh, pretty far. Uh, they incorporated the town in 1904, and what's always joked about is that Teed uh, claimed to be immortal, but he died in 1908. <laughs> and that was pretty much a critical blow to the group's faith. And their membership actually kept going, but was dwindling into the 1960s. And their foundation is still around. It's called the College of Life Foundation. But the tract of land that they originally owned is now owned by Florida as the Koreshian State Historic Site. And it's a local tourist site, especially if you're into weird Florida history or taking a uh, haunted Florida tour or looking for the skunk ape or something like that. And I think we might have heard some quotes from members of that cult at the opening of the movie where we heard John Goodman describing the hollow earth. I'm not sure. There are possibly other people talking about it. And part of the theory has the entrances of course, in the North and South Poles, as we saw in the, you know, in the movie. But, you know, like the problematic conspiracy theories, the Hollow Earth has actually been sucked into esoteric fascism 
and Hitlerian occultism since the 1950s. Uh, the latter's founder claimed Hitler and the Nazis escaped in Nazi flying saucers to fly to Antarctica to survive in the hollow earth to this day, uh, ripping off old novels like uh, Vril, The Coming Race, incorporating Hitler's influence, Madame Blavatsky of Theosophy, uh, her myths about Shambhala that she got from Tibetans or the Agartha myths in Tibet. And now it's, of course, mixed with everything from UFOs, secret governments, lizard people. So, you know, one has to really be careful when using the concept to not use the Nazi version. And it looked great in the movie. It looked closer to Jules Verne in Journey to the Center of the Earth. And I noticed an area that was obscured by a massive storm, not unlike uh, the one around Skull Island. So, you know, that could have been leaving things out for, you know, for the future. And, you know, that could have been hiding some other biome full of more kaiju or even a lost civilization, you know, for future movies. And I kind of felt like my my whole thing with the, the wasting of kind of Hollow Earth, I kind of felt like the end got into Man of Steel territory with Hong Kong being completely leveled and likely thousands or millions of people dead. And all three of them team up against the city of Hong Kong. No wonder this movie is huge in China. And I think a cooler third act could have had the humans and Kong, you know, drawing Godzilla and Mecha Godzilla into the open terrain of the hollow earth for a final showdown and team up. That's exactly what I've been thinking is like, if you're going to focus on the hollow earth stuff so much, then bring it together with the Godzilla versus Kong, which is, you know, the main plot, like have the final battle in the hollow earth if you're going to focus on that so much and as you say it does also avoid the collateral damage issue or reduces it but yeah that's that's what, what i was thinking another thing was that they were really short on the humans this time they've completely taken it to heart to just really be minimal with the humans and i didn't appreciate lance reddick's role as the head of monarch getting cut down to a few lines after cutting the rest of his scenes but like at least it's in his contract to be in the head credits, you know, no matter how little his role was. But with the Hollow Earth, you know, I was like thinking, well, where was Joe Morton and the rest of Monarch? You know, I like the carryover of other human characters from King of the Monsters. But like, where was Joe Morton as the older version of the scientist from Kong Skull Island? who wrote up the Hollow Earth Theory with John Goodman. Because it was like he and John Goodman here are totally vindicated by the existence of the Hollow Earth. And I also felt like the Iwi were glossed over and they didn't really explain the tribe being yeah. wiped out. Because they could have really talked about that with the little girl was the last of her people. Kong was the last of his kind. Godzilla was the last of his kind. You know, you had some overlapping themes there that totally weren't even touched. But I really enjoyed this one, but it just felt too short and shallow compared to the others. All three of us liked King of the Monsters a little bit more. I also have been pointing out how uh, TV shows and movies likely because of the nuclear industry lobbying and maybe uh, the military working on movies have created a positive spin on radiation or ignore its downsides altogether. And 
it's really downplayed in comic book movies of all things where it's like the source of, of powers and mutations uh whether hulk or spider-man getting bit by a radioactive spider seems to be ignored or downplayed now or the x-men uh, that being one source of mutations and overall i think it's actually no accident because you know the dangers of nuclear power and fallout have not changed since three mile island and actually we're at more risk of nuclear war or terrorism now than during the cold war so i find the whole phenomenon suspect especially with nuclear fallout healing the earth in the last movie where stuff was growing back because of radiation yeah especially when that one has probably the most explicit ecological themes a bit of almost gaia theory of the reason all the monsters or all the titans are returning and this will restore the balance but then the way they restore the balance is through depopulation and radiation yeah and the eco-terrorists were the bad guys the environmentalists were the bad guys and nuclear power the good thing it kind of retconned what happened in the first movie with the nuclear radiation in japan because a lot of the times i've seen a lot of the downplaying of nuclear radiation has been about downplaying the nuclear radiation fallout in japan and a lot of the land has been irradiated and a lot of people are showing up with radiation in their system in japan then people try to act like you know nuclear power is totally safe I wanted to say my main take, my overall take, was that uh, Godzilla vs. Kong is about humans commodifying nature as if we can control it and then the chaos that causes and ensues. And here we have Mecha Godzilla built by a human titan of industry, pun intended, <laughs> who used his massive fortune and tech thinking he could force humans up the ladder above the titans to dominate them in nature and then of course loses control of mecha godzilla and in each of these movies you can see that humans can only hope to like get out of the way and not get stepped on by these avatars of forces of nature uh, which is very japanese animism basically you know you get out of their way and hope that the winner is the one that can maintain the balance of nature as we've seen with Godzilla so far, and uh, man's hubris with the CEO threw nature into imbalance and the mutual aid, I would say, of Godzilla and Kong was required to take Mecha Godzilla down, this uh, technological monstrosity who bled oil when he was cut. I really love that. Wingard said he redesigned Mechagodzilla because he wanted to improve on the Transformers movie look he said, I remember watching the third Transformers movie in the theater. It was one of those things where I was with the date and we got there and the only seats that were available were literally in the front row. And so I'm sitting there watching Transformers 3 in the front row and I couldn't tell what the hell was going on. The Transformers, they just look like metal. They look like a plane crash. So I thought that's the thing I wanted to avoid. They were too complex. Uh, there were too many moving parts, and I couldn't latch onto anything. Nothing felt iconic with that Transformers design. And I think that's actually brilliant. The takeaway he got, and that really informed the design of Mechagodzilla because it had a really lived in but also streamlined in terms of shape streamlined and I would say aside from lighting which has gotten better with each movie especially this one I would say in each of the movies you can tell what the hell's going on 
unlike the Transformers movies, and that's a major improvement over uh, Michael Bay. Why, why is it so hard for those scenes to be coherent? coherent action and editing and i noticed this movie had four editors and i think the last one did too some stray thoughts neil cavuto on fox news was complaining about this movie that a tech ceo was the villain of the movie instead of the monsters <laughs> which is such a long how many how many movies have evil mega corporations a good villain to have that anyone can connect with because everyone hates mega corporations. Certainly not limited to this universe. Yeah, I think uh, Apex is is in the running for trying to catch up to Waylon Yutani here. And I, I really like the design of the heaves, the the, the Hollow Earth uh, vehicles. Yeah, I understand those were a reference to old vehicles from another. Okay, yeah, like they're like well, there's a lot of Toho mechs of that type you know they had looked like things that you would see in like the heisei godzilla films the super x one two and three and then there's other kind of vehicles uh hovercraft vehicles and king kong escapes but yeah it just had this feel of it a late 60s early 70s toho movie that would blend kaiju with flying saucers and everything else like it was nice to throw that element in there too i don't know if you caught that that when kong threw the the tree at the screen that was sector 7g like on the simpsons oh no i did not catch that yeah i didn't catch that till the second time uh, another thing i saw was when kong was on top of that building and he threw the uh construction crane i was thinking was that a donkey kong reference <laughs> and uh I also thought something that kept bothering me when I watched it the first time was Godzilla didn't look right in this movie. And I thought some angles did not benefit Godzilla's design with his face. I noticed Godzilla looked better slightly from a profile or from the side of his face. Yeah, uh, I will say real quick, um, they Toho had apparently made a, a requirement that they not have Godzilla emote with his yes. You know, and they tried to work around that apparently and like the way he's he's almost too expressive at points in this because and the expression's all the same it's just rage and when he's enraged it's like he's clenching his fists and and mm -hmm. pushing his chest forward and screaming and it doesn't seem like i mean it's like more of a human movement i guess than mm -hmm. like it's not what you would expect from godzilla so yeah there there's some moments where he looks a little wonky i still think he looked best in king of the monsters yeah and the last idea is for the potential monsterverse continuation given the popularity and box office success and hbo max success which dethroned the snyder cut thank god i think one blog was saying maybe do some more prequels like the way kong was a prequel or even go all the way back to like the titans fighting millions of years ago there you go. No humans altogether, you know? And uh, the director definitely wants to do more in Hollow Earth. And the scene at the end at Hollow Earth was actually the post-credit scene, but they moved it to the, to the end because they weren't sure if this was going to go on. And I've been saying for quite some time that they need to bring in Gamera, bring in more Titans from mythology or Lovecraft or something. They had the plans still to uh, do a Pacific Rim crossover. I think that would be very easy. Uh, hell, have the 
portal in the hollow earth or something. I don't think it would be very hard for the ideas and aesthetics of the monsterverse and the Pacific Rim universe to merge at all. Yeah, I can see that working. Get Guillermo del Toro to direct the Toho verse or, you know, a monster verse movie. That'd be great. Yeah. So what's your score out of 10? Seven or eight out of 10. So I wasn't the only one thinking about uh, Donkey Kong there. <laughs> did not think of Donkey Kong, did not think of The Simpsons. Uh, I did think of pro wrestling. Oh, there's also at the ending, they, they credited uh, Lethal Weapon 2 because of him popping his shoulder back in. And to uh, quote the Blue Oyster Cult song, Godzilla, which was had a really good rendition in the last movie, history shows again and again how nature points out the folly of men. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. If you like what we do, please go along to our Patreon at patreon.com slash jetpack1917. Or you could give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. That would also help us. And Derek... And we'll see you in the future. You have seen this incident based on sworn testimony. Can you prove that it didn't happen? We once laughed at the horseless carriage, the airplane, the telephone, the electric light, vitamins, radio, and even television. And now some of us laugh in outer space. God help us in the future.